This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNet. Linda is a 30-year veteran of the White House, Capitol Hill, five presidential campaigns, and is a senior strategist known for playing crucial roles for high-profile leaders. She is the president and CEO of TechNet, the national bipartisan network of technical CEOs and senior executives that Wired Magazine described as tech's most powerful advocacy group. Linda's originally uh, went to school in Texas, and uh, she is, um, uh, serves on the council of UT's Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life. Uh, Linda lectures quite frequently on U.S. politics, governance, and tech policy. First, Linda, thank you, thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. My pleasure, Eileen. Good to be with you. So, Linda, this show is about leadership, so I have to start off with uh, the standard question. Can you describe your leadership style? Yes, um, I would say that the most important things to me in leadership are transparency and empathy. And I lead with that all of the time with my team and also with my board. I think that it's just really important to be open and honest at all times. Uh, so that people do trust you and you can have that trusting relationship with your board or your staff. And then everything flows from there. So do you ever alternate your, your style or your approach, depending upon your audience? I know as a, as a woman, sometimes when I walk into the room and I'm the only woman there, uh, sometimes I, I, I adjust my style a little bit, uh, just because the audience will receive um, maybe my suggestions or, or, or uh, directions a little bit different. What about you? Yes, I would say so. Um, you know, in a lot of my interactions with my team, um, I tend to be a little bit more informal and a little bit more conversational and a little bit less about the metrics um, and a little bit more about their role in helping us get to where we want to go. And with my board, for example, um, which uh, is is a, a good example in that we do have some women, but it, it is majority male, um, and it is majority people who have been trained in law or are engineers. And so with that kind of audience, um, as with any audience, I try to really get in the head of, of that person. Um, how do they think about things? How do they measure things? How do they hear things? And so with um, interaction with my board, for example, um, I really do try to think about Um, How do you use as few words as possible to impart absolutely unambiguously the point that you're trying to make? So in very much a lawyerly engineering type of way, um, where I really make our points of here's exactly where we're trying to go. Here's exactly all the steps and all the accomplishments and maybe even some pitfalls um, that we encountered getting there. And here's where we are today. 
And so coaching my team on how they impart information to people who might have really different personalities than we do, because a lot of my team um, were very outgoing people. We've all worked on campaigns. We've worked on Capitol Hill. Um, We're mostly generalists who have a lot of skills in a lot of different areas. Um, But, you know, in imparting information to, you know, CEOs, senior executives who are incredibly busy and who run, you know, companies all day long and, and usually multiple ones. Um, imparting that information incredibly succinctly and unambiguously um, is really important to me. And so I do, I really do try to think about my audience when I am presenting information. Also on my team, I tend to be um, very supportive, but also um, very um, open to giving tough love, so to speak, to my direct reports. Um, And I can be a little bit more, um, you know, on an even playing field with them in terms of they're closer to my age, they're closer to my experience in life, and I can give them uh, kind but good suggestions on here is an area of improvement for you. Here's where I think this can be better. Here's how I think you could do it better. And um, for the younger members of my team, I tend to be a little bit uh, more um, honestly, yeah, a little bit more of a mom to them. <laughs> I tend to be just a little bit more, uh, let me get to know you. How can I support you? How can I make, you know, your job easier, happier, more efficient? And, uh, you know, going that extra mile to really be super supportive, especially of the younger members of your team uh, that are coming up. Um, that's, that's really important to me. We have a small team at TechNet. And we're all incredibly trusting of each other because we're all very self-motivated, very high-level performers. Um, That's the kind of team we have, and that's the kind of trust we've all built with each other. And um, I would say that, you know, that kind of openness and empathy and, and trust is there all the time. And that's really important. You know, I hate to make uh, sweeping um, uh, generalizations against anybody or or any generation, but I have found that, um, you know, maybe some of the younger generations versus the older generations, your approach need to be different because they have different priorities in life or they have different, you know, what they they put as the goals in life may be a little bit different. Um, For an example, I I think that um, the... uh, having a, a quality of life uh, that is different than maybe some other generations might has changed the way that you look at having the empathy about what could really set them on fire. Do you find that a little bit in the tech industry in particular, because there's there, the average age of the tech industry is, is younger than maybe some other industries? Yeah. You know, I would say on my team, you know, we're mostly pretty seasoned people, but I definitely have noticed a difference in, the approach of, of people who um, are in TechNet at the age, you know, that I was when I was really building my career at, you know, 22, 23, 24, 25, their ideas of, of what a job should be like and what they're trying to get out of it and what they want their life to be like is different, just as you said, Aileen. And so that kind of balance and that kind of um, 
the kind of work they're looking for, the kind of environment they're looking for. I really was just constantly scrapping and looking for opportunity and just trying to, you know, work so hard and to get to where I needed to go. And, you know, I think that was common of everyone in my age group. I'm 59. But, you know, the younger generation now, they do have that work-life balance thing as a, as a much higher priority than I did at the time uh, when I was their age. And I, I think that's probably a good thing. You know, it's, it's different. You know, there's no way I could go back and change that now. It is what it is, and it's my personality. But, you know, you have to be understanding and embracing of a different kind of point of view. And uh, theirs is different, just as you said. You have had an opportunity to work with some great leaders, especially in your experience on Capitol Hill. Any leaders come to mind in the past that you just thought were just incredible uh, examples of great leadership? Oh, gosh, I've been so, so lucky um, to work with so many great folks. I would say probably the elected leader who impacted me um, more than anything on my leadership style uh, would be President Clinton. Uh, you know, President Clinton, working with him was wonderful. He had been a staffer himself, you know, working um, for uh, Senator Fulbright, working on a presidential campaign, running his own campaigns, winning, sometimes losing. (laughs) He really could understand and relate to what it was like for all of us who worked for him, who were, um, in the same shoes he had been in at some point. And um, First Lady Hillary Clinton, then Senator Clinton, then Secretary Clinton, that is a hallmark of her leadership style too. Uh, and I'll say that's how they express it. Um, they, they really care about you. They really care about your family. They really care about your friends. They really care about how you're doing. Um, and they really take time to get to know you and express appreciation. And they also welcome a whole lot of inputs and different points of view into their decision making. So I'm aware that in some White House um, operations, there really have been two or three or four people at the very, very top that really had a lot of access to the president um, you know, via written word and you know, also interaction face-to-face that really helped to make all the decisions and and provide all the inputs for decisions. And President Clinton was not like that at all. He involved as many people as possible. Um, He really enjoyed what he was doing. He really appreciated the opportunity that he had. And he knew that all of us appreciated the opportunity we had to be a part of making history, making a difference and getting to work together and to do all these great things. And he always had a very sunny disposition about all that with us and would read um, all of our reports coming from so many different people all across the federal government and provide notes and feedback that then was sent back to you so that you really could see, yes, he read this, yes, he understood it, he had these questions and he values this information. Um, And so all of my interactions with him even through written word, but all the time I spent with him in person too, traveling around the country um, and doing events at the White House, um, he really did his homework. He really studied up. He really was prepared for every single interaction that I ever um, was a part of with him. And I know my colleagues say the same thing. Um, so I would say, you know, that, that was a, a really big takeaway for me and that he was a happy warrior. 
um, and he had a, a really positive attitude about the really big challenges that we're taking on. And I try to take that that to heart too, um, that everyone wants to feel good and happy and that they're contributing to the overall um, goals that the organization has set and that they're trying to achieve. And so a part of what I try to do is make sure people really understand their role in our overall success and how much they should, um, uh, how much I value it and how much I hope they value it and how much they're appreciated. Um, Linda, that was excellent. Um, so how long did you work for the Clinton administration? All eight years. And I, I had the opportunity to work with President Clinton leading up to his run for the presidency at the Democratic Leadership Council. So I'd worked with him as chairman of the Democratic Leadership Council. And then I stayed at the DLC while he uh, ran his presidential campaign. And then I joined the transition as soon as it was up and running and then stayed all eight years at the White House. Well, that's amazing, uh, you know, story there. Um, I'm speaking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNEC. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Um, I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNEC. Linda, what is the most important type of decisions you can make as a leader of your organization? I mean, there are all kinds of decisions that you can make, but have you thought about, you know, what you believe is the most biggest decisions to provide clarity and leadership to your organization? Yes, I think I would have to say that, you know, a really good understanding of where your company is in the marketplace. That is the most important thing that I think that I've brought to TechNet. Um, when I came to TechNet, it was in uh, major need of a turnaround, and it had uh, a federal team and a federal program that needed to be bolstered for sure. But I also saw this opening um, for a 50-state tech advocacy operation that was needed at the time, but the need for it was going to grow and grow and grow. And there were some people who um, don't immediately gravitate towards, well, really, you know, are there really 50 states that are looking at tech policy? And the fact was, yes, that they were at the time. But as I said, that was only going to increase and grow. And I decided that TechNet needed to be the go-to 50-state operation for the tech industry. There were other competitors I had in the marketplace for really good, solid federal advocacy and it was this added element of the 50-state operation and strategic communications to underpin our advocacy that I felt was really going to make the difference. Uh, TechNet had just come out of a, a time period when um, there had been merger discussions. Um, and so, you know, I really felt I had a short period of time to really prove why TechNet deserved to exist. And I think that the most important thing that any leader can do is to have a very realistic um, sense that starts with your gut, but then you talk with um, people that you really trust, you think it through very carefully, and you work it with your team to say, this is our sweet spot in the marketplace, and this is what we're going to go build. This is what we're working towards. And I can say seven years later, we have achieved those goals, um, and we are the 50-state go-to operation for the tech industry with a very strong federal team 
and we have the best calm support for all of our advocacy. And we have a very strong board that um, keeps us accountable. And I love that part because it's easy for nonprofits to, I think, kind of drift sometimes. Um, but that kind of accountability to a really high performing board, um, I really like. Um, so I think that those those are the elements of, of leadership and some of the most important decisions I brought to TechNet. So when you when you, you you described a little bit about you know working with your team, but the actual decision process, how do you approach how to decide? Do you make a decision by a committee, or do you think as a leader leader should just make them, or do you apply a different approach to your leadership decision making depending upon the situation? Yeah, I would say I probably follow generally the same uh, path for decision making. I, um, I really think it over myself very carefully. I will, I will toss it around in my mind a lot of different ways and a lot of different angles. I'll think through, well, if I make this decision, if I, if I do this, what are the next three things that are going to happen? So I really try to, to game out, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, how, how are all the dominoes going to fall if this is where I go? And really look at the, the pros and the cons. Um, here are all the good things that can happen. Here are all the things that could go wrong. Um, and after I think that through really carefully in my own mind, I then talk it through with some very trusted advisors who I've known for a very, very long time in my life, whose you know, judgment and experience I, I really value and respect. And then I'll talk it over to see if they can poke holes. Because sometimes when you talk to other folks outside of your sphere too, your in you know your industry, um, or exactly what it is you're trying to do, they will um, find some opportunities or also poke holes in your theories. And then I talk it over with the team. Once I feel really solid about it, and then I feel like I've given it a lot of thought, I then will talk it over with my senior leaders, and I will tell them, here's what I want to do, here's why I want to do it, here's what I think the benefits are, here's some things that could go wrong, but here's how we mitigate against that. And um, this is how I think this is going to make the organization and, and hopefully all of us, you know, better and stronger and um, get to have a really open dialogue so that they get to really probe and probe and ask questions and really understand my motivations and where I'm going. Um, and that's how we come to a really good consensus decision. I feel that if you if you hand really big decisions that impact people's lives, you know, top down, there are no questions, here, go do this, that's not going to work out very well. That's just not my style. It's, it's not a style I've ever really gravitated towards in all the, the bosses I've had, you know, with all of us, we've all had bosses that you're like, that's a great boss. I want to be a boss like that. And you've also had bosses where you're like, I definitely don't want to be a boss like that, Um so, you know, from your, your all along the way, you learn those things from your experiences of like, this is what I want to carry forward. This is what I definitely want to avoid. And I feel that a really good, open, collaborative uh, kind of decision making, you know, with your team uh, is the way to go. But I also put a lot of, you know, stock in my own ability to really think through um, all the process. Um, and all the things that go into the decision so that I'm, I'm giving them something very good and very solid and very well thought out to react to. 
So you, you talked a little bit about working with your team and creating that open collaborative culture. Um, what is the relationship from your perspective about leadership and culture and, and how does it, how does leadership affect culture? Because, you know, even your story about the Clinton administration, he, it sounds like he, they built a, a, a culture in the white house that really yeah. provided that kind of openness and the collaborative. Do you see that, um, you know, do you, do you see that as being important in a relationship between leadership and culture? I do. Yeah. You know, um, and I will say, you know, to continue on with that story I was telling you about working in the Clinton White House, you still see it to this day. Literally, the culture that was built, it still exists today. We still have um, weekly reunions that, you know, not all of us make, but some of us do. And the Clintons pull us together for reunions. Uh, obviously, they couldn't during COVID, but it, it's very rare. Uh, I, I could probably count on one hand the times I haven't seen President Clinton at least once a year since the, the time of the Clinton White House ending. And that was a long time ago. I mean, that was a very long time ago when you think about it, 21 years ago. Um, but all of us are still close and friends. And I could parachute into anywhere, anytime on the planet call out, you know, send out a bat signal over Facebook or, or via email to my, my Clinton colleagues, and they would be there in a flash to say, here's the advice I can give you. Here's how I can help you. Happy to jump on a call. Some would even say, I'll get on a plane, and, and we would help anybody, anytime. And that's the kind of culture that was built there. And, and that's what you want, right? You really want um, a really high-performing group of people who will totally back each other up in any kind of instance. And that's the kind of culture that we have built at TechNet. We put a lot of interview time, I personally put interview time into every single person we hire because it's a, a small elite team and uh, every link has to be strong. There cannot be a weak link um, because it's going to make that person unhappy too. You know, it's not for everybody. Um, and so, you know, that kind of, of culture of like, I like you, I like you as a person, I respect you as a colleague, and I'm there to support you and back you up and help you all the way, anytime, anywhere. Um, that kind of culture, I think, is what motivates people to give their absolute best. Um, and I have seen some cultures that um, are top down or that lead from a sense of fear rather than positive reinforcement. And um, obviously I've chosen a different path than that latter one. And I think the results really do speak for themselves on what kind of style really gets the, the best results. Well, you know, Peter Drucker has that famous legendary uh, quote, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And uh, do you think our current elected leaders can be more uh, effective in, in leveraging uh, leadership and culture to drive some of the important initiatives we have in the United States today? Yes, I do. And, you know, I would say, yes, I, I believe in what uh, Peter Drucker said. I think that's right, because you instill a culture and you instill a way of doing things in your team so that every single time a problem or an opportunity arises, they have that kind of mindset of like, here's how I need to look at this. Here's how I need to, to execute on this. Um, and I think with elected leaders, you know, I have to say that um, I'm very impressed with President Biden. I think he's doing a very good job. 
um, I had the, the opportunity to work with his chief of staff and a lot of his senior advisors and a lot of people across the administration. Um, and these are very experienced people who've been, you know, really running government for a very long time, who really know how to leverage all the, the levers of power. Um, and they are, they have a great humanity that they bring to it, which I think is very important. I think that's, that's probably the, the thing that I like the most about President, Bi President Biden is he brings this just great sense of humanity and empathy at a time when I think people really need that. But also he and his team are very, very focused on results, very focused on bottom line, very focused on get this done and deliver it. And you can see that in spades in how the COVID uh, vaccination situation has completely turned around in the last few months. Um, so I would say he's a great example of the kind of leadership that I'm seeing out there right now that I really appreciate and admire. I'm speaking with Linda Moore, president and CEO of TechNet. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Fed News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNet. Before we start talking about leading through change, Linda, I want to back up a little bit. You are the President and CEO of TechNet, and the mission states you're the voice of innovation. First, tell us what that means. What's the voice of innovation, and what drew you to TechNet? Oh, gosh. You know, I think I'll start with that last part first, if you don't mind. What drew me to TechNet, um, and this kind of gets to exactly what the voice of innovation is, um, our member companies, we have 84 members, and we are the most diverse tech association. We have everything from autonomous vehicles to electric vehicles to fintech to venture capital to hardware to software to internet platforms. Uh, we, we literally have all of the tech ecosystem. Um, and that's what make, makes TechNet so special is we really do speak with the voice of all of those people, all of those actors who are really out there innovating and creating new products and new services and new ways to engage or get things done or solve problems every single day. And I love the fact that I will never master this. Um, there's something new happening and there's something new being created every single day by one of our members. And I love the fact that, you know, I have to get up every single day and learn the new curves and the new dynamics in this. But it's also what makes it challenging, um, but a great opportunity to work with policymakers because they're incredibly busy people. They have a lot of issues they have to deal with. Um, they have a lot of constituents to serve who have a lot of concerns. And so where we come in um, and what I really value about what we've built at TechNet is we are a trusted advisor to them. We, we really take our job of educating policymakers on what's going on with technology, uh, on, on, you know, depending on what they're looking at. Could be they're looking at cloud uh, and migrating you know, their state to the cloud. Could be they're looking at, at autonomous vehicles. Could be they're looking at AI for the first time. You know, our ability to come in and, and really be a very solid, you know, honest, open truth teller to them on, you know, how the technology works, helping them understand, you know, how what they want to do can be executed or not by the businesses that we, um, 
that we work with and also what the impact will be on consumers. Uh, because those, they can't possibly, we can't possibly expect our elected leaders to know all those things. It's an incredibly complex, uh, difficult uh, set of issues to really understand and, and wrap your mind around and really understand how they'll be implemented. And so our team at the federal level and at the state level, we really enjoy that part of it. And sometimes it's just literally sitting down with a policymaker and saying, what are you trying to achieve? What is it you would like to do with this bill? And then we can help them understand, well, here's some unintended consequences. And here are some other things that you might want to do that will make this even better or stronger um, for consumers and for the people that you are trying to represent uh, and represent well. Um, so that's, that's what the Voice of Innovation Economy is all about and why I love being at TechNet. You have a unique experience set of both the tech industry and government service that is needed more than ever right now. But over the last decade, the technology landscape has changed so drastically with the evolution of some of the technologies you just brought up, like cloud computing, AI, quantum, and 5G. You know, how do you believe these technologies advantages will change our lives? And how do you think it will change the way the government accomplishes their very important missions? I mean, that's at the heart of kind of what you're doing right now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and we have a long way to go. Um, boy, that's a, that's a big question, Aileen. I'll go ahead and tackle it like bit by bit, I think. Um, first off, I just want to tell you, I'm sure you've had experiences like this if you have siblings. When I was going for the job of CEO of TechNet, I remember my older sister saying, well, what do you know about technology? Like, you won't get this job, right? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know a lot about technology, but the people in the companies know a lot about technology, but what they don't have is someone who really knows how to enact public policy at the federal and the state level. So that's why I think this is a great job for me. And so then she was like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, so it's, I, I find that for people like me, you know, you can learn the policy and you can learn the, the politics around the, the policy if you have good political instincts and experience. So that's what I feel like I've brought to TechNet and what the team that we have at TechNet brings to it. Uh, because we certainly aren't experts in every single one of these issues because they're incredibly complex. We love working with our members every single day to learn more and more and more about the latest edge, you know, on all these different issues. I will say that I think that of the ones that, you know, we're talking about now that will make the most profound changes and differences in lives, AI is, is at the top of the list because AI will free up a lot of workers from doing things that are very routine and rote and things that don't really require a lot of judgment. But then that also puts the pressure on government to really be sure to train and educate our workforce so that they can do more higher value um, add jobs. And so that's a huge thing that we're focused on is, is really preparing the workforce of tomorrow. And that's, that starts with little kids too, with computer science and STEM education, which is honestly really hard to come by in a lot of states. So there's that. I also think that government is going to struggle with, they already are, but it's going to become more difficult on uh, how to deal with gig workers. Gig workers are about 40% of our workforce now, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, and all the other great things that we all use, and how to, we're working with government now on how they should really think about 
protecting all of the flexibility that these workers want and need um, with providing them with benefits um, so that they're still a part of the social fabric and they're still taken care of in a way that, that the rest of us have come to expect in, in full-time jobs. And then the last I would say is autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles are going to change a lot of the way we do things, a lot of the way that we, we get around and move around as a society that will impact things that we haven't even thought of yet. And the AV companies are ready to go on this, and you'll see a lot of change on this in the next few years. And China is heavily investing in all of these areas, while the U.S. government has pulled back on R&D and investing in these areas. So we're pushing very hard for a much more robust um, government commitment to developing these so that our values are instilled in all these technologies. So you, you said the key word that really I, I, I did the opening on this segment is about leadership and change, right? Leading people to adopt. You, you said it right there. It's going to change our lives like autonomous vehicles. Uh, all of a sudden, instead of being car centric, we're going to be you know, thinking about something else about how we get places and do things or uh, AI. It, do, it doesn't matter what role you have, whether you're working in the healthcare industry or in a bank. Um, some of the, the the fundamental things that you did before, it's going to change the way that you do your job uh, going forward. You know, can you say anything to the leaders out there about how to adopt this change and how to get the, the net new worker to understand how they can leverage this technology, have, you know, that leading through change? Yeah, you know, um, I would say I'll go back to my Bill Clinton stories, too, for a minute. You know, I remember a big, huge part of his um, of his second campaign was make change your friend, you know, because that was when technology was really taking off in the U.S. and you were really starting to see a difference. And um, that is scary for some people. I completely understand that. Um, but I do really believe that that leaders have to really make um the citizenry feel very comfortable with what's coming, you know, and, and let them know that there's a role for them in that. And so even a part of what we do at TechNet in sharing um, stats and stories and graphics and video of all that's coming their way um, so that it's not this abrupt shock when, <laughs> when it suddenly is, is, you know, shows up one day, um, you know, it's like, like everything in life and, and big transformations, it takes a while, you know, there are steps along the way. And I think that elected leaders uh, and also the leaders of companies and in our community leaders um, and then people like me um, have to just make all that transition really comfortable and, and make people understand you still have a vital, vital role to play and you're still in control of your life. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNet. Next, we'll find out what's Linda's advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Linda Moore, President and CEO of TechNet. You know, Linda, uh, earlier, we talked about leadership. You talked about, um, you know, the need for more education in this area. Um, you're a, a woman, a, a leader in both a technology organization and women on uh, in, in the, you know, Capitol Hill. Uh, but women are still drastically underrepresented in leadership positions, both on Capitol Hill and technology companies. If, if not, um, 
if not already shared, um, I, I, there, there are tons of statistics out there that actually show that women in organization or more diverse organizations um, are, have better outcomes. What do you think we can do to change the low representation of women have in technology companies today? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, one thing that that we have done at TechNet, um, and I know that our member companies are doing this as well, is really focusing in on those um, women leaders that already exist in the industry and putting them more out front and also putting them in a position to share their story and to mentor young women. Um, That's hugely important. Another thing that we have done at TechNet and our member companies have partnered with us on this Um, We weren't able to do this during COVID, but in the past, we were able to uh, work with local schools across the country to do um, STEM and computer science uh, training camps. And sometimes we did these in state capitals um, so that you would actually get to to show the policymakers, um, the students, as they're actually being mentored by the, the, the folks who really know how to do the coding and the programs and, and all the things that they wanted to do, and for them to really get to see what government is like all at the same time. Um, so investing in, you know, uh, all of the programs and support that we can at TechNet across the country at the state level and also at the federal level, we're constantly asking for more investment in Hispanic-serving institutions and also in African-American colleges, HBCUs, and also in all these programs that are going to get more women involved in STEM. And there are several leaders on Capitol Hill, including Jackie Rosen, um, a senator, and also her colleague, Deb Fisher, um, and a couple in the House that are really taking the lead on how do we get more women and young girls interested in and staying on track in STEM. And there have been some private sector initiatives that have uh, have sprung up around this too. There's also a program at the State Department that um, you know your listeners might not be as familiar with called Tech Women, and that's something that I've I've worked with before as well. And the State Department has a program where they select the most promising female entrepreneurs from around the world, and they are embedded in Silicon Valley companies for six weeks to really learn um, how the business runs, uh, to really be mentored, um, and also to get a sense of our culture as well. And so with all these lessons they learn from being at great companies like Oracle or Cisco or Hewlett Packard or Apple, um, they take all these great lessons um, back to their home countries where they can create even more opportunity and wealth and capacity for their own communities. I would like to start a domestic version of Tech Women. Because I feel like if we're bringing women from all over the world, which is a wonderful thing, why can't we bring girls and young women from West Virginia or Texas or South Carolina or Michigan to have these kinds of experiences out in these Silicon Valley companies uh, where they can really learn all these things as well. And then another huge part of what we're doing at TechNet is we're also supporting legislation and also fostering initiatives that will provide these kinds of tech hubs that we've grown uh, to to see all the benefits of in Silicon Valley all across the country. Um, Because we want all parts of the country to have access to opportunity and to have innovation going on that will feed into America's global competitiveness. 
And um, just one piece of legislation in particular, Chuck Schumer's Endless Frontier Act is a good example of that. Um, so it's really fostering, you know, lifting up all people to pursue their dreams and their goals in this area of technology and innovation, but particularly those that are underrepresented and, and women are, are my top priority. You know, it, it, it's, there's no doubt in the technology day, the, the arms race is really in tech talent. Um, we are, uh, you know, it's, it's a very tough market if you're hiring out there for tech talent. Um, but is it almost to a national concern? Is it a national security issue when you start looking at the amount of talent that we have, especially in the areas of AI and in cloud computing and some of the key areas, cybersecurity, and you look at some other administrations, worldwide governments, such as China, that has made a ton of investment from kids right out of kindergarten, of educating them from start to, to finish. Do we really need to make a bigger investment in the U.S. to make sure that we're pulling out these more diverse cultures to be part of the fabric? Because it's actually a national security issue. Yes, I, w- I would agree with everything you said. And, you know, what's more... Um, I would just say that, you know, America's technology leadership didn't happen by accident. I mean, it was purposeful. You know, technology, uh, really cutting edge innovation used to take place all in Boston and the the area right around Boston. And then with um, government investment and focus and Stanford and other uh, institutions of higher learning uh, really created what Silicon Valley is today. Um, so you can't take it for granted. Just as it didn't always exist, it won't always exist if, if there's not real focus and attention on keeping America's technology leadership going. Um, some people would be shocked to know that, you know, in, in the innovation index that is done every year uh, globally uh, by several top um, magazines, Forbes is one of them, the U.S. now hovers usually around number nine in innovation leadership in the world. Um, Some people would say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. We shouldn't only be number one every year. Well, yeah, we should. That would be great, but we're not. We're really um, losing out because we're not focused on what it is that that makes it happen. And it's exactly the kind of um, education, focus on education at an early age. Um, Most schools in the U.S. don't even offer computer science classes. So that's something that we're battling every day at TechNet uh, to try to get done, you know, at the state by state level and federal level. Um, And also, you know, during the Trump administration, we had very much a uh, keep immigrants out. You know, we don't need, um, you know, all these H-1B visas and other high skilled visas. Um, They really ground those to a halt at the end of the Trump administration. And um, the Biden administration has reversed a lot of those policies. But just as you said, Eileen, we're in a global race for talent Um, and the competition is fierce and um, we have to do two things. We have to um, put out the welcome mat as we have before for really brilliant people who want to come here and contribute to companies that already exist or start their own companies and grow their own companies. And we also at the same time have to invest in, invest in STEM and computer science education of our young people and all the way through college so that we have our own homegrown pipeline too. The Biden administration clearly wants to keep America in a lead for technology innovation. 
what do you think the hottest areas and why, and where do you think, um, what, what's the advice we would have to this technology companies out there about how to help call, you know, help with this call to action? Yeah, I would say the, the areas where uh, China has invested most heavily, um, and that would be quantum 5G AI and autonomous vehicles, but then just overall R&D investment. Um, we really have to, to be worried about that, and we really have to pick up our game. And I do see um, a focus on that in the Biden administration, and I have to give her credit where credit is due. I also saw a real focus on that and, and good leadership on that in the Trump administration as well. The U.S. CTO, Michael Kratzios, was, was very focused on leading that, and he did a very good job. He left it in, in good hands now for the Biden team to, to carry it forward. Um, and U.S. tech companies spend a ton of money on R&D, but it's mostly on those kinds of, of um, R&D that they can then bring to market and, and use for their own means and their companies. It has spinoff effects, and that's a good thing too. But um, yeah, we, we really have to focus in on those areas because if we're not careful, uh, we will see global leadership you know, to China and others, but particularly China, on those. And then they will be in a position to write the rules of the road on how all those technologies are used and deployed um, around the world. Um, and that also, those things will also be used uh, for uh, military systems and for government systems all around the world. And so the, the need to really get on top of that and maintain America's global leadership in that area, all of those areas that really support and underpin businesses and governments and militaries, very, very key. Well, you, you brought up R&D and now I'm going to age myself. Uh, you know, I, I've been in the industry 30 plus years. And when I first started out, um, uh, uh, United States uh, really ran the clock speed of technology in the sense that the majority of the, the cost or, or the money that going into research and development came from the U.S. government. Uh, that table has turned now. The majority yeah. of the money going in R&D is actually private industry, which is exactly driven by, um, you, know, you know, profit, right? And so some of the things for, you know, broader research for other things may be overlooked. So how do you think we can change that with our elected officials today? Should they, should they change some of their approach? Should we be putting more money in research and development or should we be working with industry to change the way they approach research and development? Yeah, I will tell you, TechNet's engaged on this very thing right now. Um, uh, I mentioned this earlier in the interview, the Endless Frontier Act, authored by Chuck Schumer, uh, the majority leader, and also Todd Young, senator from Indiana, um, it gets at this very thing. It invests $100 billion in uh, identifying the 10 emerging technology areas that U.S. should focus on, and it also invests money into creating 10 tech hubs across the country outside, you know, all of the usual established tech hubs that we have now in the coastal areas um, and, and really helps all those um, tech hubs create those innovations that are going to keep us at the, the cutting edge and at the top of global leadership and technology. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, government was the, the primary source of all that funding for research and development that created what we have today. And now that has dropped precipitously. 
and um, our companies are investing in, you know, those kinds of, of R&D that they can bring to market. But that is not where the big discoveries usually come from. The big discoveries like the Internet, for example, uh, came from government-funded R&D. And uh, we can't overlook that. If we do, we'll definitely lose the race for global leadership. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Linda Moore. Linda, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very valuable advice, especially around technology and the U.S. leadership. Thank you, Aileen. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. 